This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hello, prosaists, lyricists, essayists, narrators, and storytellers. Welcome to our third installment of our summer recap of our favorite episodes of the year. And today, Grant and I have paired up Gish Jen and Peggy Orenstein in a show that we're calling Storytelling from Legacy Authors. Gish and Peggy were two of our more high-profile and prolific authors from last year, Grant, and so for this reason alone, we wanted to bring them back to listen to their takes on their own writing, their genres, and how they classify what they're doing and more. And I love connecting with debut authors and hearing about their process. It's always awesome. But when we get to talk to writers like these two who've been at the craft for a long time... It's really this quality of talking to a master, you know, like someone who has just been in the trenches, knows from whence they speak, uh, and I love it. (laughs) So what's it like for you, Grant, when we interview these more seasoned authors? Yeah, I'm in awe, to tell you the truth. Um, You know, as I mentioned in the interview with Gish, I started reading her when I first decided to become a writer way back in the late 80s. So she's always been in a higher, more elevated category, you know, like a true, true master. And I, I... Honestly, I was intimidated to talk with her as a result. And then and then Peggy, you know, she's more up here, more my age, but she's written so many groundbreaking books. And she's the type of author who you don't blink if she's on Fresh Air or the Today Show or something like that. So again, I was just in awe. And I feel so grateful and fortunate that authors like that would actually come on our little podcast. Yeah. And uh, in both of those interviews, I enjoyed listening to the authors speak about the genres in which they write. You know, authors who write a lot or who've written more than one book, they, they give a lot of thought to form because, of course, like once you've had one book or more under your belt or in Gish's case, you know, so many stories she's written over the years, the, the ones that come afterwards are always up for comparison, Um, you know, and and there's a body of work that we're talking about instead of one book or one story. And I like that about interviewing authors with multiple titles too. Like Peggy, for instance, made reference to things that she's written about in previous books, which was really interesting, things that have been recurring threads in her writing. And then Gish told us her thoughts on having written the best story she's ever written, which is saying a lot because she's written a lot of stories. Yeah, that was a great moment. And you know what I love talking about uh, with Peggy is how she, for me, she took this genre of a self-improvement memoir, but she made it about so many different things. And it made me think about how you can take a subgenre like that, like a sub self-improvement memoir, and it doesn't have to be just that, you know, because she, she talked about history and politics and the climate crisis and how we've lost touch with the value of our clothing as a result of fast fashion and throwaway culture. But But yet she had her herself and her own self's experience involved in, in all of this as well. And, and then Gish's story collection, Thank You, Mr. Nixon, is such an interesting collection 
because of that, um, for me that as, and, and for you too, Brooke, you really pointed this out. That's just that, um, you know, the lens of generational tensions, because, you know, Gish covers this 50 year period of time from Nixon's very, you know, very stage managed 1972 visit to Mao Zedong's China to the present through COVID. And I guess that's all very interesting to me because generational tensions and views, um, I don't know, they're just becoming more interesting to me, the more I age and um, just the different ways that the world is being seen uh, or what's being forgotten as well. And, and I'd love to write more about this topic myself. Yeah, it's great. And there's so much to explore and so much to say uh, about all of that for anyone who's mining for more. Uh, so it is a treat to revisit these two celebrated authors. And we hope you'll go back and listen to the whole episodes because they are fantastic. And meanwhile, we have our best of highlights. We hope you enjoy Gish Jen and Peggy Orenstein after this short interlude. We're so thrilled to have Gish Jen with us today. Gish is the author of one previous book of stories, five novels, and two works of nonfiction. Her honors include fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation, the Radcliffe Institute for Advanced Study, and the Fulbright Foundation, as well as the Lannan Literary Award for Fiction and the Mildred and Harold Strauss Living Award from the Academy of Arts and Letters. Her stories have appeared in the Best American Short Stories five times, including Best American Short Stories of the century. She's also delivered the William E. Massey Senior Lectures in American Studies at Harvard University. She and her husband split their time between Cambridge and Vermont. Welcome, Gish. Hi, it's wonderful to be here. Oh my gosh, it's wonderful to have you. And I absolutely just love this new collection. Uh, I want to launch in by asking you about the tensions that are central to this new book. And really, there are a lot of them. But the central one, as far as I understand it, tell me if you agree, is the generational tensions. And maybe that's, uh, you know, because the generational tensions spawn all the other tensions. But I wanted to just ask you about this because you're a child of immigrants. And this book is really teed up for this topic since it spans 50 years and also, you know, is with a couple different families in the mix. So what are you looking for, you know, when you're writing generational tensions? And, um, you know, what do you want the reader to see? Well, I have to say that now that you brought it up, I can see that there is a lot of generational tension. Um, but I do not sit down to represent generational tension, um, and I don't have any point that I'm trying to make with the generational tension. Um, that said, I, of course, have grown up with a lot of generational tension. Now, generational tension is something that everyone experiences, but it is especially acute if one generation has come from one culture and there's a younger generation growing up in a very, very different culture. So I guess it's to say that when I think about my book, I think more about cultural difference maybe than I think about generational difference. Um, but those things actually, as you point out, are actually coincident. Well, maybe I can draw upon that then a little bit more because I, what we were hoping to explore today is really about the tension that exists in, in this collection and other collections that you've written. And so, it, you know, if it's not intentionally generational tensions, I feel like these short stories really do pull at various threads. And so there's cultural, there's political, you know, there's, you sit there and you just kind of feel these teeming feelings between different people who are, you know, living in China, living in the United States, living in Hong Kong, and then who have very different mindsets. So is, is, is it just natural then because of your lived experience or are you trying to dig into the heart of more tension for the sake of the story? It arises very naturally out of my lived experience. 
Um, but also, of course, I, I am I'm a fiction writer, and um, you know, and so if, if you're asking whether I am deliberately mining something which is from my life, I would say yes. So I would say both that it arises naturally, and also that you know, as a writer, that I'm I'm mining it, and um, and that's to say that um, you know we have many many, many, many tensions with which we live, but I'm always trying to uh, focus maybe on the tensions that seem to me maybe the most unexamined, um, you know, so, you know, what seems to me to be kind of fresh territory. And, um, you know, so I, I, I mean, I guess I've had the same, you know, the same difficulties with, you know, teaching a younger person how to drive, for instance, as anybody else. Um, but I'm, I'm less likely to focus on that because, you know, many people have written about the frustration of teaching younger people to drive and uh, they don't need me to do it. Um, so I, I tend to focus on, you know, things that I think that I am maybe singularly uh, equipped to deal with. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And Gish, I was going to mention that another big aspect of this book is the Chinese diaspora, the leaving for various kinds of lives to America, to Hong Kong, to Italy. And those who leave, uh, you know, obviously sacrifice so much, but then their their children, you know, have a life that's very different, as you mentioned. And there's often an inherent tension there around what is acceptable to do with one's life after such a sacrifice has been made in order for you to, to have, you know, this uh, better life, supposedly. And I, I read that your parents weren't pleased when you became a writer and, and this expectation among immigrant parents of what their children should do, can and often does end up fracturing families. So I was wondering if you could speak to that experience of that tension in your own writing journey. Oh, yeah. Well, of course, you know, so my parents were immigrants from um, mainland China. Um, they were involuntary immigrants. So, you know, they just really ended up here. They did not come here for a better life. They, you know, there was a war, there was revolution, and they just, this is where they landed. And I think like many immigrants, what they mostly wanted to do was to resurrect their old life only here, only to discover very quickly that that was not really possible. And um, in the middle of all that, you know, comes this daughter. Um, so, you know, it, I will say that my parents had a, a lot of trauma. You know, there's a big war. You know, you can only imagine if you journeyed to China for some reason and then sort of got stuck there and then suddenly this is your life. You know, you would, you know, you would find it very, very difficult. And they found it very, very difficult. And by the time they had me and I had gone to an Ivy League school and so on, you know, they just wanted for me to do something which was safe, secure, and, you know, from their point of view, I guess, understandable. And, um, you know, becoming a writer was none of those things. So um, we ha we did have a lot of conflict about that. And I would say that, you know, that my experience as a, you know, a member of the Chinese diaspora is very common. I mean, because, you know, the number of things that our parents understood was very, very small. They come from a culture where scarcity governs everything. So, you know, you don't want people to do things that are risky. Uh, you know, everything is about, you know, can you do something that's going to help stabilize, you know, a family um, in a society where there are no safety nets and, you know, and, um, you know, to be at the bottom of society is really a terrible thing, um, whereas there's not much of a middle class. And, um, you know, their, their whole orientation is completely 
different than the orientation of the people here, where there's a very large middle class and there's a big social safety net. And there are lots of different things that you can do and, and have a reasonable life. And that's something that's really hard for them to understand. Um, so, um, and, the, and the, all their instincts are just like, oh no, you know, <laughs> please just don't do anything that's going to make trouble for us or make trouble for the family or just make things harder. And of course, to become a writer, you know, it's hard to be a writer is hard for me, but it's also hard for everyone around the writer. You know, it's hard for my family, even now, you know, it's hard to have somebody in this profession. And so in that way, they were kind of right, you know, that by deciding to be a writer, I was making things harder for everybody around me. At the same time, you know, I'm growing up in this culture where, you know, the messages are, you know, be who you authentically are. You know, you know, if you have something in you, especially an artistic impulse, you know, the, the message is to please realize that. And um, so I'm hearing all of those voices and they, they run very, very counter to everything that my parents understand. Thanks for unpacking that. It's uh, interesting because obviously as a daughter of immigrants, you always have one foot in each culture. And one of the things that I like about the book is the critique of both countries, you know, of the United States and China. And I watched a bunch of other interviews in preparation for today. And there was one place where you were talking about the leadership in both countries being in need of an overhaul, which I totally agree with, of course. (laughs) And I loved what you said about both cultures thinking that the other is unfree. And I wondered if you could share a little bit more about that concept and how that shows up in Thank You, Mr. Nixon, the new collection. Yeah. um, So obviously in this culture, because we are very focused on, you know, this, this self that we believe in, we believe that we have selves and that, you know, expression of those selves is, you know, kind of of paramount importance. So therefore, things like free speech are very, very important to us, right? So it's very important that we can say, you know, Biden sucks and, you know, and nobody cares, right? Um, you know, it, that's very important to us. And so and when we look at them, we think, you know, it's very unfree over there. You know, they, they don't get to say these things and, and, um, and we feel that that's a kind of prison. On the other hand, you know, within our families, we are actually quite careful, you know. So if you have a daughter who is overweight, you cannot say to her, you know, go on a diet, you know, or, you know, you you can say that, you know, there are many, many, many things that you can't say. And, you know, that's that's part of our whole system and we're protecting their self-esteem and, you know, there's all these things. But anyway, you know, the the family is is not a place where you can just let loose and say whatever you want. In China, you know, publicly, you can't say anything, but within a family, you can say whatever you say. You know, this business of, you know, you know, my mother telling a daughter, like, you know, you look terrible in that outfit. You, know? <laughs> you should get rid of it, you know, or, you know, you, you know, you have, you know, you, you really need to lose 20 pounds at least, you know, you, you know, in China, people would not think twice about saying something like that, you know, and, you know, and, um, and so they feel that, you know, what is this American place where even within your family, you can't say anything, which is how they see it. Um, and so they see, they think we're, we're very unfree. And then also within our political discourse, you know, they think we're very bites wall, you know, very politically correct. There are all these things you cannot say. And I would say, you know, that's correct, especially with cancel culture now that, you know, there are many things that we can't say. So we have freedom of speech, meaning the government can't shut us down. But our mores are such that there are many things that we can't say. 
and and where they're like the opposite. <laughs> the government, the government shuts all kinds of things down, but their mores are much looser. And your heritage, as we've been talking about, is this space of being the daughter of immigrants. And thank you, Mr. Nixon, is set up to cover a 50-year period uh, since last year when you published the book was the golden anniversary of Richard Nixon's 72 visit to China. So I personally don't know enough to declare it to be true uh, that China has changed more than the United States has in these 50 years, but it seems to be the case. So I'm curious, what are what's like one or two of the most consequential changes in China over this half century that you explored in your fiction? Yeah, so I would say that China has changed more more than the United States in the last 50 years. Um, For one thing, millions and millions and millions of people have been lifted out of poverty. And so whatever you think about authoritarianism, um, the present government, uh, you know, all of it, I don't think anyone can take it away from the present government that they have completely transformed the lives of, I mean, I mean, and I do million, I mean, millions and millions and millions of people. So that's been huge. Another thing, of course, is that, um, is they have become a, you know, a capitalist society and, you know, a capitalist society is capitalism with Chinese characteristics, you know, but that, that is a, that is a huge change. And so, you know, I mean, so we've gone from, we went from a China that was behind a bamboo curtain where we barely had any kind of exchange with them, you know, and, and where the society was, you know, was was extremely third world um, to a society, you know, in 50 years, they've gone from that to a country where, you know, I, I you know, they have, the, you know, the idea that they could become, the, you know, the number one country in the world is not far-fetched. I mean, I, I don't think that they will. Um, but the fact of the matter is they're, you know, they're number one, they're number two, you know, um, giving us a run for our money. And um, and the whole idea that a country that was just kind of sitting there <laughs> in really quite, in quite an undeveloped fashion you know, going from that position to the position they're in now in 50 years. I mean, that is just a breathtaking change. Well, in closing, Gish, you've said that Detective Dog is perhaps the best story you've ever written, which is <laughs> really saying a lot since so many of your stories are so enchanting and powerful and poignant. And I, I love the story. You know, the best part, of course, is it's surprise unfolding. But I'm curious as a writer, what is that like for you to have written something that you feel demonstrates the pinnacle of success for a short story? You know, I hear that praise and, and I think maybe it means it will be a benchmark for all future stories, but maybe, you know, you're more enlightened than that and it's just something to celebrate. So tell <laughs> us about that. Um, it's, it's, it's more like, um, I'm just happy I did it. You know, and I, I don't think that I don't think in terms of, well, can I do that again? Or um, I don't think, uh, you know, I, it's not like, yeah, I, well, I don't know if, you must be a writer if you're doing this. Yeah. Um, it's just not like that. You you just don't know what's going to happen. And so and I, and I don't think it's, it's hard enough. You don't have to saddle yourself with any additional <laughs> pressure. So um, so I, I don't think that way. Um, it's it's more like it's it's kind of miraculous to me. And I look at it and I think, oh, my God, you know, I sitting down, I would never have expected that I had that in me. And um, and I'm I'm just thrilled. And um, so, you know, maybe, you know, in, in another year, it, it will not have the luster it has for me or for others. 
that it seems to have right now, but I'm certainly enjoying this moment. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, may I be so lucky again? We'll see. It's a really wonderful story. And, and so is the entire collection, Gish. So thank you. And thanks for being on Right Minded. Thank you so much, Gish. My pleasure. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Today's guest is Peggy Orenstein, and she's a New York Times bestselling author, award-winning journalist, and internationally recognized speaker on gender issues, especially those related to teens, sex, and relationships. She's the author of eight books, including her latest, Unraveling, What I Learned About Life While Shearing Sheep, Dying Wool, and Making the World's Ugliest Sweater. Peggy is joining us from Berkeley, and Grant and I are in Berkeley, so welcome, Peggy. We're so thrilled to have you. Great to have you. I wave at you from across town. <laughs> yes, I know. We're all in our different Berkeley spots here. And Unraveling, as I said, is your eighth book. So congratulations. It is. <laughs> it's wonderful. And I, I'm especially curious to know how much this book is or isn't a departure from your previous books, because in a way, it's really a challenge memoir in that you set out to do this thing, which you can tell us a little bit about and then write about it. And I'm curious, have there been elements of that in previous work or how is this different than what you might have tackled in the past? Wait, is that a thing? Is that like a publishing thing? A challenge memoir. I'm going to call it a that. thing. Okay. Self-improvement memoir is a thing though. Well, yeah, no, I didn't think of it. That way. I, I mean, I think everything I do is a challenge because I'm, <laughs> I'm always, you know, going into something often completely ignorant. Um, even when I did Girls and Sex, uh, I remember going out with a girlfriend who was a teach a high school teacher. When, and I already had gotten the contract to do the book. And she said, um, do you know what a hookup is? And I just looked at her blankly. So I was starting at a pretty low, low level of understanding of the current culture. But, but I don't see this as a departure for a different reason. I mean, I see it. I, since writing it, I've thought about a lot more um, how it speaks to some of my earlier work. I think it's a real bookend to Waiting for Daisy, my memoir that I wrote that came out in blah, 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 I want to say 2008, um, about um, infertility and our quest to have our daughter. That was a challenge. Um, and having breast cancer. And that book ends with Daisy's birth. And this book ends with her going off to college. So that was sort of a um, nice bookend. Um, but also a friend of mine recently pointed out that my first book, School Girls, ends with the line, that's how you teach about gender one stitch at a time, because I'm watching this middle school teacher in San Francisco doing this quilt project with, with her kids, with her students. And I had, as you said, eight books. I had completely and utterly, I had no idea what he was talking about when he said that. So I had to go reread my own book. And I was shocked that it had that metaphor in it. Um, but of course, textiles are metaphors. You know, they, they just are in everywhere. And even when we, you know, when we send these little messages to one another on these devices, we call them texts, which is the same word as textile. 
um, and we make threads out of them. It's so ubiquitous. So there's that. And then the other pieces is that I've always felt that my real beat as a writer and my concern and my interest has been um, in examining the unexamined aspects of ordinary life and particularly ordinary women's lives. And unraveling is so much, you know, first of all, the story of women and women's work and what we don't know about women's work and how radical women's work is. But also I was so shocked as I went through it that I never, through this process really revealed to me um, that we never think about our clothing the way we think about our food. And, and, and why is that in terms of sustainability and ethics? And we sort of joked before we came on air that, um, Grant and I probably have met at a farmer's market, but you know, <laughs> how natural is, you know, what, what about your clothing, Grant? What are you wearing? <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, all, all hundred percent hemp fabrics purchased at a Berkeley <laughs> farmer's market um, exactly. from, a, from a man on the corner. No, right, right. <laughs> uh, well, Peggy, you're, you're known for your work writing about gender and your previous books are literally classics, you know, books like what you mentioned, school girls, flocks and girls and sex and, and this book at its heart is really about women because you're writing about how women have more for millennia been the ones doing the handiwork necessary to make what we wear. And I'm just curious if you could go a little bit deeper into where the inspiration for this book came from, especially since maybe it came from COVID or did it start earlier than that? Well, I mean, it did start earlier. I did an event in Santa Rosa recently um, for the book release, and there was a woman there who um, is sort of the hero of girls and sex, Karis Dennison. And she said, raised her hand and said, you know, when you were following me around in 2012 for girls and sex, you were talking about wanting to share sheep. And I thought, I was? Huh. <laughs> okay. Um, so it's been kind of a, a long held, I mean, I'm just a curious person. And I like to know how things work um, and, and that, you know, and, and I'm a knitter. And so I would look at my yarn and just think, gosh, I wonder who thought of this yarn thing and, and, and who in the world thought of knitting. And we still do it the same way, you know, like that we did it a million years ago. It hasn't changed. So these things sort of amaze me. So I've, I'd had this curiosity and, and actually tried to get into sheep shearing school before I thought maybe I'd write an article about it, but I could never, for various reasons, it never worked out. And then um, during, you know, when, when lockdown hit, I had just had boys and sex out. Uh, I'd been touring the country. I was actually on my way to an airport um, on March 11th and I just couldn't do it. I turned around uh, and, and canceled three gigs. And th two days later was when everything, you know, just fell. And, um, so I was just sitting there and I, 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 I didn't know what to do. And I was knitting a lot and uh, it seemed a good time to try this. And, and I really, honestly, I thought my, my agent and editor who live in New York city would just laugh at me. You know, what, what kind of thing is that to do? Especially that there, I have no track record doing something like that, but it was at the moment that everybody was baking sourdough and putting it up on Instagram. And so it seemed very much, I guess, um, trendy. When, when I pitched it and, you know, who knew we were still going to be sitting there a year later. Yeah, no kidding. You hit a zeitgeist moment. And I was wondering, well, so I first want to say I saw you in person recently. And so I got to see this ugly sweater, which is beautiful in its ugliness. Yes. It, it is. And and I wanted to ask you, how long did the process take from start to finish to shear the sheep, dye the wool and make the sweater? And I asked that specifically because I want to know what insight you had, you know, going into this whole process initially, like, what did you think? <laughs> what did it turn out to be? Oh, God. 
gosh, I had no idea. Um, and I, you know, that actually suddenly triggered something from also from Waiting for Daisy, which is I talk about Wabi Sabi because I'm in Japan during that memoir for part of it and talking about the, you know, what, what makes something beautiful is it's imperfection. And I think that's kind of true of the ultimate sweater. It's kind of beautiful because it's ugly. But I, I just, I really didn't know. Um, I, I didn't think about how long the process would take so much as how long a book takes. And I thought that the book would be, a, you know, I pitched it as a quickie. I, I said, I'll be done with it, you know, easily within a year, maybe six months. Um, we can get it right out. And it, it took a lot longer than that, in part because, I mean, there was the process and different things took different amounts of time. But there was also just like, you know, I just got so interested in the research on all of this stuff. But, you know, so shearing sheep, I did in a day, I just, you know, learned how to do that. And it was very, 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 very hard. The timing does not, the time that it took does not reflect the difficulty of the job. But there were other things like, oh gosh, carding, um, which is how you get after you've washed the fleece and dried it and you have to comb it with these two things. You might've done this like on a field trip as a kid to a farm or something. You, you, you card these, you take these two brushes of like dog hair brushes and kind of go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth with a little piece of fluff until it gets really poofy. And then you roll it in a, into like a cigar shaped puff and you put it aside for spinning. It would take me about 10 minutes to do that. And um, I read that it took 579 of those to make a sweater. So that part took, you know, forever, like forever. <laughs> <laughs> So it depended. And, and I was learning things. So learning to dye, you know, I mean, I could have done it in a day, I suppose, but I wanted to, you know, learn a little bit about it and how it worked and different aspects of it. So it took months. Peggy, that's interesting because I think the, that is part of the self-help or self-improvement memoir is just that learning someone else's process, especially for something as foreign as shearing a sheep. And before you came on, Brooke and I were talking about the industry's love-hate relationship with memoirs and how these kind of hybrid memoirs, or, or as Brooke said earlier, self-improvement or challenge memoirs, they're often better received because of their very nature, because they're tackling broader topics and there's a baked-in practicality for the reader uh, where you're learning something in addition to reading about your experience. Or for me, it would be like reading about something that I kind of want to learn but don't want to truly do. Hmm. And in your book about your daughter, which you mentioned, Waiting for Daisy, was a more straightforward memoir. So I'm just kind of curious about your thoughts on books like this one, uh, the one you've written, and how you think about it in terms of genre. <laughs> Grant, I'd like to say I think in terms of genre, but I don't. I think in terms of what I want to write, um, and then I try to get to convince somebody that it's a good idea. <laughs> uh, I mean, I've had memoirs like I had. A, I, I have long wanted to write something, a memoir that was also about, which is not unrelated to this, but is about my family history in North Dakota, um, Jews on the Prairie. Uh, or Dakota Jews, as I've wanted to call it. Um, but uh, that, you know, I, I would always say, well, I've got this Dakota Jews idea and I've got girls and sex. Uh, I'm not really sure. What do you think? And they would go, um, <laughs> yeah, let's <laughs> Let me think, think about, about that, that for not a second. Um, so that one has never been written. Uh, that's really interesting. I don't know. Um, you know, I really have always aspired to doing, I guess, what you're calling a challenge memoir. I think of them as kind of George Plimpton-y kind of things a little bit, like mm. going off to do something that you would, I, I have a streak in me as a person that I like to do periodically um, kind of 
outside of the box things. So for instance, next month I'm going off to trek a hundred miles through Slovenia, or I, I went dog sledding for a week in the Arctic circle. These are things I do for, you know, for, for, and then write about them. Um, so I, I, I get a, you know, I get kind of a wild hair about things. Um, and, and I, and I love, I mean, if I could spend the rest of my career doing that sort of thing, doing like, Oh, I wonder if I can do this and and then try to write about it. I would, but I, but for me, I feel like, I guess I didn't think of it as grafting. I think, I think of it as braiding, you know, in sort of my own personal experience and my own responses I think that only gives it depth and allows the reader to relate. But I also think, you know, to a degree, I've always done it. You know, if you look at things like, um, even in Schoolgirls, my first book, I walk into it sometimes. You know, it's not completely omniscient. And and there's moments like, I remember one of the girls in the book had asked them to keep journals and she gave me a journal and she had taken a bunch of Tylenol PM one night in a kind of, you know, quasi attempted suicide. And then she wrote in the journal, um, you know, that nobody knows about this, but Peggy's going to read it. And I thought, oh gosh, you know what? I can't, the girl is 13 years, you know, I can't just read that and write about it. And it was a kind of moment of truth for me as a young journalist, um, especially one who writes about teenagers. And so what I ended up doing was going to her and saying, I need to tell an adult in your life about this and you can choose who, but I need to talk to somebody that is actually, you know, in your life. And then I wasn't sure how to handle that in the book. Um, and what I ended up doing was writing the story I just told you that she had, you know, she handed me this, I had this moment of what do I do? I asked some social workers and psychologists, what do I do? And this is what I did. So even back then, I was kind of inserting myself into the narrative and acting as for the reader, I always think of myself as not an expert or a uh, or somebody who is, you know, going up to the mountain and bringing down this information to you, but as a fellow traveler, as somebody who's walking by my reader's side or sitting by them on the couch and and having a conversation and am as in it and finding out about whatever we're talking about along with them, not not telling them, you know, what it is as for somebody who is more educated or knows more or has no foibles. Well, and it's executed really well. I mean, like Grant said, I, I don't think I would do this shearing, dyeing, knitting project, but I feel like I got to experience it vicariously. So thank you for that. Uh, and, you know, you wrote this book during COVID. And as you said, people were doing all kinds of creative things. I mean, there was the baking craze and there was lots of handcrafts going on and the world was so slowed down. Um, and now, of course, it just feels like someone hit fast forward. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm curious, what wisdoms do you have to share with us about having had that opportunity to slow down and doing this project? I mean, we were all forced to slow down, but I guess I'm wondering what do you miss and not miss about what we all recently lived through? Um, well, I mean, for me, one of the great real gifts of it, I write a lot. Part of the personal memoir aspect of this was writing about my parents. And 
I knew I was going to write about my mom because she taught me to knit and which is a theme in the book of what we learn from our mothers, what we don't learn from our mothers, what we wish we learned from our mothers, what we pass on to our daughters, what we wish we didn't pass on to our daughters, what we try not to pass on to our, you know, all of that. <laughs> but I didn't realize how much I would write about my dad and, and my dad during lockdown, he, he has since died, but during lockdown, he was 94. Um, he had dementia. He's hearing impaired. Um, he was in a facility in Minneapolis where nobody could go in and out or out. And even before that, it was so hard to communicate with him because of his dementia, because of his hearing impairment. And I would, you know, busy life, busy life. I think I'm going to call dad. You know, I, I, I want to be a good daughter. I am a good daughter. I love my dad. Going to call him, going to call him. Got to call him every day. Oh, well, but now, you know, he's probably eating. Well, no, now he's probably sleeping. You know, now he didn't and it's too late because there's a way that you sort of, you don't want to, you know, and, and, and so you kind of trick yourself out of it. And especially when I was doing that, um, what I mentioned before, the work of carding, which was so tedious, what I would do is have his aide um, put him on my screen on FaceTime and I would just sit with him and I would card my fleece the way people used to, you know, thousands of years ago, which was very slow, no internet. They were, they were essentially on lockdown thousands of years ago because, you know, <laughs> What else did they have to do? And and my dad um, would watch, uh, there were the Twins games, um, Minnesota Twins, they had like a fantasy season of reruns where they always won, which he thought was something he was doing with his walker, a, a trade secret, he said. He wouldn't tell me what it was, which is probably why they're losing now. He <laughs> uh, but, um, you know, and, and he would say, he thought I was there. He would say, can you pass, you know, Pat, can you grab me that glass of water? And I'd say like, dad, no, I can't reach it. Um, and... And we would, you know, we didn't talk a lot. So we would sing a lot because um, the part of the brain that stores song lyrics is not the same. I mean, eventually it will be, but it's slower to degrade cognitively and or devolve. And so he could still sing all the songs he knew as a young person, You Are My Sunshine and Give My Regards to Broadway. And so we would sing and we, I would card my fleece and he would watch his game and it was slow and it just let me connect with him in a way that even when I visited him in Minneapolis, I didn't do because I would always be off seeing a friend or visiting my sister-in-law or my brother or whoever. And um, gosh, I'm, I'm just, I, I can't even tell you how much I treasure that time now looking back at it. Well, Peggy, in conclusion, there's the question always that most authors are asked at, in moments like this of, is what you're working on next. And I'd like to, put a little twist on that because I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated by your Dakota Jews project. Mm. <laughs> and, um, and I'm fascinated on the level of, because I have a, a version of that myself and it's, it's, it's never the book chosen, but it's the book I most want to write and the one that would be most meaningful to me. Mm. And I want to read Dakota Jews, by, by the way. So I'm just kind of curious about your idea, generating pitching process and actually what that looks between your agent and publisher, because it seems like at this point, Maybe you're in charge enough that you can call the shots on what you write next? Uh, not entirely. I mean, you know, I suppose it depends. It's part of it is a commerce thing, right? I mean, maybe they'd let me write that, but I'm not sure that I could make a living writing that. So um, that enters into it. And actually, um, I mean, if I may kind of diverge a little bit, that was a really important lesson in doing this book was around creativity and the meaning of creativity and being able to re-embrace amateurness and, and, and a beginner's mind um, and process of a product while doing this was like the huge lesson for me. And I, and I think that when we do something like writing for a living, that 
sometimes that joy in creating can be degraded a little bit by the demands of the market if you are truly making a living this way, which I am. Um, so yeah, the Dakota Jews book, I keep thinking when I'm free of those concerns someday when I'm older, or when I'm, you know, living on my social security or whatever, and don't need to make an income. That's my book, except now everybody's died and I probably lost that book. But so this book, um, Unraveling, uh, was the, I, I think the way that that my publisher saw it as a departure was that it wasn't like this, you know, big capital B I G book that my last two books have been that girl or my or girls and sex and boys and sex, and what they want and expect from me um, is to be able to come up with another capital B capital I capital G book, and that's really hard. And those do not just pop into my head; those come out of you know my experience. Those come out of my interests. Those. It's it's not something that you can sort of do on demand, um, but that's kind of the expectation of my publisher. So as I pitch books, uh, that's kind of what they look for. And I was really happy and, you know, delighted to be able to write something else. Um, and, and, and what was really wonderful for me in this was that was the way that it got me to it, it allowed me to use a different aspect of my writers not entirely I think this is always in my books but but foreground humor um personal writing and voice in a way that I feel is is more challenging when I'm writing those sort of bigger reported books well, thank you so much, Peggy. And I do want to say to all of our listeners out there, because the you hit all of those notes, you know, it's it's an unexpected book in a sense, because it's got this very fun, cute lamb or sheep <laughs> on the cover. And it's got this kind of wild subtitle, but it's quite serious. And I learned so much about the fashion industry and really thinking a lot more about my clothing. And I hope all of our listeners who haven't bought the book yet will rush out and get it and you do the audiobook yourself. I do. So that was fun as well. So thank you and congratulations. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. This was great fun. Thanks, Peggy. I'll maybe see you at the next Berkeley Farmers Market. Oh yeah. In the hemp section. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody. I already mentioned that I think it's worth going back to these two episodes and listening to the whole thing because they are so great. Um, just love those two authors and we're so grateful to them for being on our show. And we thank you all for hanging out with us this summer. And we have just another couple weeks of August ahead of us. So enjoy what's left. Yeah, you know, Brooke, August is such an interesting month because it's it's always viewed as the most summer of summer months, you know, the dog days of summer, the time when, when most people take vacations. And there's nothing like reading a good book on the beach, of course, but if, but if you're like me and not going to the beach, I hope you're able to put a little summer feeling into your days, as the Jonathan Richmond song says. So I'm going to make sure to be a little lazy and linger over a good story, and I hope all of you do the same. 